This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer, my mother and the only guest so far to appear more than 10 times with a now record 13th appearance on the show, Christine Duncan. (laughs) Wow, that was quite some introduction. (laughs) Hello, everybody. (laughs) But first, before we get to the episode, number 200, Dad. Yes. Congratulations, guys. We're about 20 days short of our fourth birthday, but I started out with a list of 434 films to cover. This will be our 186th different film covered on the show. It's a little weird to think that we've gone this long, this far, but it's become so ingrained into the routine of my week it would be weird if i didn't have to do it anymore true very true takes one night up for recording not to mention various uh, amounts of time necessary to um watch the movies do the notes prep edit yeah yeah so we have promised everyone that we were going to do big movies, quote unquote, on each of the 25s. So do you remember what our 25th episode was? (laughs) No, it was Rio Bravo, but that one was more for us personally. Do you remember what number 50 was? No. Boy, this is going to be like pulling teeth. Apparently Casablanca the first time through. We've done it twice since. Do you remember 75? Well, in (laughs) keeping with the theme, no. The Wizard of Oz. Do you remember 100? Uh, No. It was when Rob came on to uh, help pinch hit in a way he didn't need to, apparently, because you fought off cellulitis to do The Godfather. Ah, yes. Then for 125, do you remember what we did? We also had a guest for that one. (laughs) No. The Godfather Part 2. I mean, that one should have been a pretty leading, obvious choice there, but all right. 150. This was just last year. (laughs) No. Citizen Kane. Ah, yes. Okay. Now, I didn't even remember what we did for 175, but what do you think it was? It's one of your all-time favorites. Um, no. Wedding Crashers. (laughs) No. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Ah, yes. That lovely chestnut. So I I would say Gone with the Wind fits among that list. Yes. But I forget what we have planned for 225 here. I'm going to have to pull it up. See, I I don't remember these. You know, they're not like buried into my memory. An old trial lawyer. uh, Once I'm done, I move on to the next. I don't think about what's already been completed. Well, unfortunately, because we're doing all of these anniversary visits this year, 225 is 
not quite on the same level as the rest of these. What is it? The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Okay. Worthy of discussion, but among the pantheon of the ones we've already been visiting, I'm not quite so sure. But either way, we are here tonight to discuss the romantic epic and the best picture winner from 1939, Gone with the Wind, celebrating its 85th anniversary this year. Directed by Victor Fleming and others, uh, I know it's not going to be something we're going to discuss much, but there were at least, I think, three directors credited somewhere on this. Victor Fleming accepted best director for the movie, but it started off with George Cukor, and at one point had Sam Wood, and I know that the visual technical director who got an honorary Oscar also was a part of the directorial team, and there's possibilities that David O. Selznick jumped behind the camera for some of this movie as well. Written by Sidney Howard, among others, again, this was a team effort, and he ended up getting the primary credit on it and the eventual Oscar. Music by Max Steiner, starring Thomas Mitchell as Gerald O'Hara, Barbara O'Neill as Ellen O'Hara, Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara, Evelyn Keyes as Sue Ellen O'Hara, Anne Rutherford as Kareen O'Hara, Hetty McDaniel as Mammy, Howard Hickman as John Wilkes, Alicia Rett as India Wilkes, Leslie Howard as Ashley Wilkes, Olivia de Havilland as Melanie Hamilton, Rand Brooks as Charles Hamilton, Carol Nye as Frank Kennedy, Clark Gable as Rhett Butler, and Harry Davenport as Dr. Mead. Recognition for this movie. Gone with the Wind was originally released on December 15th, 1939, celebrating its 85th anniversary later this year. Upon its release, Gone with the Wind broke attendance records everywhere. While there is no great data for the box office gross for this period, the premiere was a three-day event that former President Jimmy Carter once called, quote, the biggest event to happen in the South in my lifetime. Gone with the Wind would garner overwhelming praise, particularly for its scale, its technical marvel and ambition, and for Vivian Lee's performance as Scarlet, with only a few detractors feeling the movie was too long. Gone with the Wind would also be recognized by the Oscars with a record at the time, 13 nominations for Best Actor for Clark Gable, Supporting Actress for Olivia de Havilland, Original Score, Sound, and Visual Effects, while winning Best Picture, Director for Victor Fleming, Actress for Vivian Lee, Supporting Actress for Hattie McDaniel, Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, and Editing, as well as two honorary Oscars for Outstanding Achievement in the Use of Color for the Enhancement of Dramatic Mood in the Production and for Pioneering in the Use of Coordinated Equipment in the Production. Sidney Howard became the first posthumous recipient of an Oscar for his work on the screenplay, and David O. Selznick also received the first Thalberg Award for humanitarianism. <laughs> the Oscar win for Hattie McDaniel was especially controversial at the time due to the backlash within her own community for how she and the black community were depicted on screen, as well as her segregation during the ceremony itself. She and her escort were made to sit at a separate table at the back of the room. However, she would be the only recipient of color from 1939 until 1963, when Sidney Poitier would win Best Actor for Lilies of the Field. The film has gone through subsequent re-releases in 1942, 1947, 1954, 1961, and 1967, with each time increasing its total box office. It is only one of 11 films to hold the title as the highest-grossing film of all time, 
The film is also the longest holder of that honor as it had the record from 1939 until it was unseated by The Sound of Music in 1965. And then, after it reclaimed the crown after its 1967 re-release, it was unseated again by The Godfather in 1972, totaling roughly 31 years as the king of the box office. To date, it is still ranked as the number one highest inflation-adjusted grossing film of all time. The film is also featured in several high-profile industry polls. In 1977, it was voted the most popular film by the American Film Institute. In 2016, it was selected as the ninth best directorial achievement in a Directors Guild of America members poll. It has since been recognized by the AFI on the following lists. 100 Years, 100 Movies at number 4. 100 Years, 100 Passions at number 2. 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains for Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara, both as nominated heroes. 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes with Frankly My Dear, I Don't Give a Damn as the number one quote of all time. After All, Tomorrow is Another Day at number 31. As God is My Witness, I'll Never Be Hungry Again at number 59. Fiddle Dee Dee is a nominated line. And I Don't Know Nothing About Birth and Babies as a nominated line as well. 100 Years of Film Scores at number 2. 100 Years, 100 Cheers at number 43. 100 Years, 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition at number 6. And the 10 Top 10 list as the number 4 epic film of all time. The critical perception of the film has shifted in the intervening years, which resulted in it being ranked 235th in the Sight and Sound's prestigious decennial critics poll in 2012, and film directors ranked it 322nd. Although the film has been criticized as historical negationism, glorifying slavery and the lost cause of the Confederacy myth, it has been credited with triggering changes in the way in which African Americans were depicted cinematically. Gone with the Wind is regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and in 1989 became one of 25 inaugural films selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Gone with the Wind currently holds a 90% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 97 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start each week, Dad, what is your relationship to this film? I think I saw most of it. When I was in high school, it was happened to be on one of the network weekly movies type situations, and I watched most of it. And then I think it was right after we were married, Mom and I watched it together, uh, since I don't think I'd seen the whole thing through and she had read the book. Mom, what about you? This book was important to me because as an exchange student, I craved any literature I could find in English. And the library in the city in Germany where I was placed had only classic novels. And so I read as many of them as I could. And I know I read this book at that point. I read it again in college and I read it again in my early 20s. And I absolutely love this book. I think it's very well written, although I think Margaret Mitchell can be a little bit wordy in her some of her descriptions about different and various scenes, but um, the story itself and how it's written is easily read and all-encompassing. I mean, you start the book and you don't want to put it down. So it's very well written. So when I knew that the movie had been out and I decided to watch the film, I watched it, I think, as as I came back at some point in college, the early part of my college years, And I was so disappointed 
because there are so many differences between the book and the movie. And I just remember I didn't like it at all. But I also realized that when you have a book that's that many thousands of pages, trying to put it into any shorter summary is is difficult. But they did take some liberties that made me sad. And then I watched it again with Dana after we were married. And I just remember just, I was very infatuated at the time with the South and how the culture was. I've always been very interested in cultures and and the culture of the South and what really happened down there during and after the war. Dana always says I'm a closet historian, but I, I learned by by reading a lot of historical novels and then doing a lot of research on my own, um, something piqued my interest. So I just loved this book right from the very beginning and was very interested in the film until I watched it. I know that this is a film that I knew about for a very long time. It's a very famous film. It's one with a lot of name recognition, at least from the title. I knew there were certain things such as, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, has been a popular staple for decades. I didn't actually sit down and watch the movie until 2020. And part of the reason that I did, I think I watched it in like July or August of that year. They had removed it from HBO Max at the time, due in part to the backlash and being part of the protests of that summer and obviously the backlash, let's say, of the George Floyd protests and everything that was going on in that moment. And they added some extra context and some other, I would say, explainers or contextual videos to allow us a little bit more of a nuanced opinion on the film, especially because I think it had been given a notoriety or a reputation for being a potentially difficult film. And we'll obviously get into that as we go on with our discussion here tonight. But it was one that had been sitting on my list for a long time. It's obviously a Best Picture winner. As I've mentioned many times before, my desire to see every Best Picture winner stems back to, I think, like 2014. And by that point in time, I've now finished them, but it, it became like an eight-year project to try and finish them all, especially because they were hard to find for a lot of things. I had to either record them off of TCM or on the DVR or something, and sometimes that was the only way to get them. But it was also on the AFI list, which I have also subsequently finished as well. So it's a very important film. Obviously, we we mentioned in the top here on the recognition, it's been recognized by a lot of lists. It's a very famous film. So my desire to see it, while maybe not quite as high, was one of, I'm going to need to see this at some point. And that's what kind of carried me over. I have not seen this film since. I did have very low expectations initially going in, and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the film, even though knowing that it was the longest Best Picture winner of all time and that it was somewhat of a a bit of a grind, potentially, I thought it actually went fairly quickly for the runtime that some people might look at and say, hell with that, I'm not watching three and a half hours of one film even though they would do that on an average night watching any TV show that they have on Netflix or something. So what is the film about? This invites a variety of answers, so have at it. 
Well, I really think that it it talks about how swiftly life as you know it can change and how the people change with it. So whether it's a historical event, whether it's war, a family change that requires change, in the blink of an eye, everything can be different. And I think it's depicted here as this war came in and took away their way of life and everything that they knew, and they had to pick back up and start over and how each of the people changed into what they needed to, to survive at their best and at their worst. It's a love triangle with a very antebellum Southern atmosphere feeling to it. Their way of life, their uh, reliance on the peculiar institution, as they called it, of slavery is whitewashed away through this film and it's all more about how their war is being imposed upon them because their lifestyle is being attacked. So this this kind of is a romantic fairy tale uh, with a love triangle at the um, at the root. And the fairy tale is that this culture and such was something idyllic. See, I take a bit of umbrage with that. I don't think that it's inaccurate but I think it's painting the movie in a broad brush. One of the things that's I think I mentioned while we were all watching it over the weekend, the two primary characters that we follow, Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara, despite being presented in the notion that they're from the Old South, are the two people most likely to be unadherent to the actual traditions of the Old South. They forego the niceties and the frailties and the good graces and all the other things from about moment one that they're on screen to the end of the film. And so I think it counteracts this notion that everybody was like that. Because if these people are the heroes, the romanticized version of what the Old South would like to put forward as their best, I wonder if it undercuts this notion that they supposedly had. Now, I understand that the crawl at the beginning of the film sets the tone and the mood for this dreamlike state of what the Old South used to be and presents the Civil War as somewhat of a tragedy. It presents Northerners and particularly Yankees in a rather difficult light comparatively to themselves. And yet I still find moments of introspection, of self-reflection in a few of the characters, particularly Rhett Butler. So I think it's many things. If I were to boil it down to anything and its basic elements, I would say that this is pride and prejudice without the happy ending. But the, but the concept, <laughs> the, the way that it's presented, I mean, the, there's the when they're at 12 Oaks and Rhett says they're going to lose the war because, and then he lists all the reasons, which is that they don't have the industry. They don't have the trade. They don't have the manpower. They don't have all of this. I mean, that's right into the lost cause, which is that again, that the Southerners had somehow, this was just imposed upon them. Their way of life was taken from them, that they had no, nothing to do with it. Whereas it was the decisions they made as to how their 
economic base was going to be established is what really led to the war and their decision to say, we're not going to change. We're going to pull out and secede from the union. So I don't know. I don't necessarily agree. I think that, you know, they, it comes across as being their, that they had somehow had this whole thing. It was a, a, a tragic series of events that was out of their control and it wasn't. To play devil's advocate, I think that conveniently forgets that everything leading up to that scene in the early portion of the movie is about how all of them seemingly want to go to this glorious war. It feels very much like the beginning of All Quiet on the Western Front when they're going to this glorious victory. They're all going off to war and the resources be damned. Our pride is at stake. And anybody that would question it would be a traitor, which they directly call Rhett Butler a traitor. And he points out, you have a lot of arrogance to think that you have any ability to win this war. Now, I think the two lead characters are very complex figures. It's one of the the areas I think the movie is still very strong in presenting, is very layered figures. And it does so through the duration of the film. I don't think either one of them is any one thing. You can maybe say that about a lot of the side characters, but it does a good job of at least developing its two primary leads, giving them a lot of additional nuance and such. I also think maybe to a degree, you have a lot of layers of Ashley and Melanie as well, maybe not quite to the same extent. But I think the discussion of Scarlett O'Hara is going to dominate a lot of this conversation because of how complicated and difficult that character is, not only in on-screen relationships, but just to purely like. This is where there is such a difference between the book and the movie. The book can share her thoughts and feelings And she is a nasty woman. She really is. And Rhett isn't any nicer to her than she is to him. And they cut out all of the conversations. It's it's truly a bad marriage, right? I think that their characters, yes, they are extremely complex. But I don't think that the movie depicts exactly how vile she could be and how destructive and manipulative. They sort of gloss over the fact that she steals her sister's bow. And one of the things is that the timing of the marriage between the book, or to um, Rhett, and, or not to Rhett, but to Charles and Melanie and Ashley is totally different in the book than it is in the movie. In the movie, Melanie and Ashley got married and then they attended the wedding of Scarlett and Charles. However, in the book, it's exactly opposite because she manipulated it. And in the South and in the traditions, people who were engaged got married if they were in the same family due to the engagement date. So if you got engaged a day before somebody else, then Your wedding had to be first. And she manipulated it in the book so that she and Charles got married before and 
course, it was a big deal in the book and their wedding outweighed anything that happened with Melanie and Ashley. So she really, like I said, is a vile, manipulating, conniving woman. And I don't think that it quite comes across in the movie. I think she's romanticized. I would disagree. I think that all the parts of her scheming and conniving, whether it's stealing the husband in order to secure her financial future or doing anything that she has to is quite apparent during the progression of this film. Maybe it's not as stark a reality as presented in the book, but we're already talking about a movie that's renowned for its faithfulness to the book as much as it could be for a three and a half hour film. If we went any more adherence to all the inclusions of the book, it's going to be seven hours. It should almost be a mini series in that capacity. Well, anymore, I think they would have made it into a miniseries. And perhaps somebody should think about it, but clean it up or make it a modern day film of some variety. Nobody's given money to do that right now. I, I just, I can't see it. And in the book, consequently, she has two more children. She has a child with Charles, and then she has a child with her second husband. His name escapes me now. And Fred? then she has Bonnie. With no, it's uh, Kennedy. Kennedy, oh, yeah. yeah, and um, Frank, and the, of course, of course, there's no mention of them in the movie. The focus is only on her child with Rhett, and there's a lot that happens there to show how poor a mother is she she is, and how disconnected from her children she really is, and that's not what she was about. And it goes to show that yet again. Whether you watch the movie first or read the book first, you always like what your first impression is more. Because I think those uninclusions actually make more sense. Perhaps. But they also make the book incredibly interesting, and I think it gives more depth to the character. But I've never read the book, and I've only seen the movie. And you read the book first and then saw the movie. I was also quite young and impressionable when I read the book. Hard to think what that era was like. <laughs> so, I mean, we've kind of brushed over it a little bit, but if this were to be remade, not necessarily with the same time period or the production or the setting, so take it out of the Civil War. Does this story still work if it's basically dropped? You take and pick up Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler and drop them into 2023. Does this story still work? on the standpoint that we don't involve slaves, we don't involve the antebellum South, it's just strictly this love triangle and the situation involving these people. Does the story stand alone by itself without all of those interweaving things? Or are they too important a pillar to what the story was for this to exist? No, I think you could definitely make something out of the same premise. Because... Scarlett wasn't really in love with Ashley. She was in love with the idea of him. It was a fantasy world that she lived in. Women get caught up or think that they're infatuated with somebody and carry that. And yet reality is always something different. So I think you could do this with that same love triangle with somebody who's completely infatuated. She just never finds it. And all along, of course, was this other person 
who really understood her. So I don't know, maybe my best friend's wedding is something kind of similar, you know, where she's Ashley and she were best friends, right? I think that the the premise could be done. I think you could do a lot of things in a modern day setting. And I think there have been things that have been done with a similar story without all of that backdrop. I don't think it would work at all. I think that you could have the underlying story, but I think the underlying story would be rather boring. And I think it would be difficult to explain the level of infatuation that was going on between the uh, Scarlet and Leslie, or excuse me, Ashley characters without having the romanticism of the time period. I mean, if you could find something that would be that romantic, you know, maybe you could do it. But I, I, I tried to think of a time frame with, that would have that level of romanticism yet. Uh, and couldn't. So I don't know. So we've danced around it a little bit. Dad, you've kind of attacked it a little bit directly. Does this movie whitewash its subject material in favor of a more accurate depiction? Yes. After the war, they it's called the lost cause myth, which is what the South has been playing up, try to justify the war and their beliefs. There's basically a few points I wanted to make about this. The first one is is that that the that succession had little or nothing to do with the institution of slavery. They seceded to protect their rights, their homes, their way of life. It, except that that all blows out of shape when you read the the declarations of secession by each of the states. You know they're talking about slavery being the, the key economic driving force. So no. The next one is is that slavery is portrayed as positive and good. We have uh, house slaves in this film that are basically faithful and treated as as a part of the family, and that is kind of a myth. You know, you had some that were included to some extent, but I don't think they were nearly as uh, as included and, and treasured as they were in this or, or depicted in this film. And then you start talking about the, the next step, which is, is that the North just had all the advantages and there's therefore that's the only reason they won, that the soldiers themselves in the Confederacy were overwhelmed and they were of honor. And in fact, the entire film portrays the Yankees as being marauders, as being uh, thieves as being, um, invaders. Yeah. They, I mean, you know, the, the threat of them being either robbed or raped, uh, is implied throughout the movie. Then the Confederate soldiers are portrayed or are portrayed as heroic, gallant, and saintly. And they all are throughout, you know, they're all, Oh, how wonderful Captain Ashley was, and you know, I mean, it's it's the the whole thing, and then you've got the whole thing of the symbols of it. The key is Terra or any of the plantations, and how they become more important than what took place. So I, you know, and I I just don't see I don't see where where in this film falls right within that those tenets. I think the film has a tendency to advance this lost cause ideal and romanticize the South and the whole slavery period. And I have a totally different opinion because as I watch this film, 
I'm not concerned with, I shouldn't say I'm not concerned with that, but I, it's not the main attraction for the film. The film is the story of somebody losing everything and having to continually restart, pull herself up by her bootstraps and about a man who is so in love with her that he knows her better than herself and who she can't bring down the walls in order to love and return through all of the changes that are going on during that entire time period. To me, looking at it as a, as a culture, it was just a piece of the culture of that time period. I don't think we necessarily have to hide it. We're not necessarily proud of it. But I also, I, I just, I guess that's not my focus when I'm watching this. If I were going to watch it just for that, maybe. But that's not what the story is about. That's not, that's, that's not the, the emphasis here. And I think that people pick this apart thinking that it's the main part of the story. And it's not. It's like a sideline. Now, if you read the book, they're more involved. There's And she has personal relationships with all of these people. And I don't believe that that was, that was uncommon. These people lived and breathed right with them. They worked side by side. They, they did things for the family. And they did get to be family members. And I do believe that there were people down there or down or in the South that actually treated them with respect, some respect. But again, this isn't the focus of the film. The focus of the film is the two main characters. So the rest is sort of superfluous. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I held with you up until the point where I think you give a fairly inaccurate description of whether you were considered a part of the family is never going to be the case. You were always in a superior, advantageous position that you always had ultimate power. Even Scarlet takes matters into her own hands with a level of violence when she could, when it suited her. She always knew she had ultimate authority. And whether or not they're happy and docile, there's a pre-existing notion throughout the course of the film, whether directly involving or more likely subconscious or indirectly involving the structures of what slavery and the Jim Crow South instituted as part of it. I think that does crawl throughout this film, even if it's not necessarily the main point of the story. It's still almost a character within the story, yet even though I wouldn't say that because the film has its good points is not necessarily outweighing those good points at a loss to that this this film should be relegated to the same dustbin of history that I think the birth of a nation has. But then it leads to my additional question on top of this. Usually popular film is a reflection of the culture in which it was made. Adhering to the entertainment and the values and the whims, for lack of a better term, of the people that it was meant to be receiving it. So is it the film's responsibility to take a more accurate depiction of history, particularly given at the time we were still in the Jim Crow South? Yeah. 
Well, see, and the problem is, is that, yes, there's part of this story that has nothing to do with the lost cause. And that's the part that they're trying to suck you into, which is to put together a story that has some romanticism, some ability to tug at the the heartstrings of the watcher uh, so that they're they're paying attention to that. And the rest of this stuff just kind of subliminally infects you and kind of alters your view or perception of what the old South really was. And this came out at a time when there started to become more and more push for, or for legislation against uh, lynching that was proposed in 1938, 9, and 40. There was a, a movement towards more civil rights and for more open migration from the deep south to the north of African Americans at the time. So I think this all fits within it. It's again, though, a romantization of a way of life that was based upon something vile. I don't know if I want to give anybody an excuse or let them off the hook necessarily for the atmosphere that they caused. Clearly, the Hollywood effect has had numerous tentacles over time, whether it's the depiction of famous events or how we think culturally about a certain social event. The good war being World War II and the bad war being Vietnam are direct results of a lot of the movies that we made, but they aren't made without some level of popular sentiment being on their side to receive those as well. And so I don't know where I would put the line between what their responsibility is to the filmmakers, especially not knowing where society was going to go 85 years on, comparative to where it was at at the time that it was made. I Well, absolutely. I don't appreciate how the people were taken advantage of. I mean, but like I said, it's a story. It's also entertainment. And sometimes things have to be just taken at face value. Well, I think we're going to have a much farther reaching discussion on all of this as we continue through the rest of what we have here tonight. So let's get moving on the rest of the categories here. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Gone with the Wind is a sprawling epic that unfolds against the backdrop of the American Civil War. Vivian Lee delivers a captivating performance as Scarlett O'Hara, a Southern belle whose resilience and determination define her journey through love and loss. Clark Gable's Rhett Butler adds charisma and complexity to the narrative, creating a tempestuous dynamic with Scarlett. Director Victor Fleming weaves together romance, tragedy, and historical upheaval, crafting a visually stunning and emotionally charged cinematic experience. With its grand scale and memorable characters, Gone with the Wind remains a classic that transcends time, leaving an indelible mark on the history of filmmaking. Thank you. Did you know? The fact that Hattie McDaniel would be unable to attend the premiere in racially segregated Atlanta outraged Clark Gable so much that he threatened to boycott the premiere unless she could attend. 
He later relented when she convinced him to go. Did you know? Barbara O'Neill was only 28 when she appeared as Ellen O'Hara, Scarlett's mother. Vivian Lee was 25 when she appeared as Scarlett, who was only 16 at the beginning of the film. Did you know? Max Steiner was given only three months to compose the music, considering that 1939 was the busiest year of his career. In that year, he wrote the music for 12 different films. In order to meet the deadline, Steiner sometimes worked for 20 hours straight and took benzedrine pills to stay awake. With almost three hours of music, Gone with the Wind had the longest film score ever composed up to that time. Did you know? Vivian Lee later said that she hated kissing Clark Gable because of his bad breath, rumored to be caused by his false teeth, a result of excessive smoking. According to Frank Buckingham, a technician who observed the film being made, Gable would deliberately eat garlic before kissing scenes with Vivian Lee. Did you know? At 2 hours, 23 minutes, and 32 seconds, Vivian Lee's performance in this movie is the longest to ever win an Academy Award. And with that, we will take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 201st episode, we discuss the irreverent cult comedy film Office Space from 1999, celebrating its 25th anniversary. Written and directed by Mike Judge, music by John Frizzle, starring Ron Livingston, Jennifer Aniston, Stephen Root, and Gary Cole. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, we left off at Best Performance. Who do you have down? Victor Fleming. Um, I thought that uh, his direction kept the film coherent. The uh, inner splicing with the, the breathtaking cinematography, um, the pacing was good, the uh, use of camera angles. I just thought he deserved best, best director, and I thought he really provided the best overall performance. I know that you can go very easily with a lot of the technical aspects of this film. Unfortunately, I think I went all three with acting performances. Part of it has to do, at least with Victor Fleming, as far as he's concerned. I don't know what parts he was in charge for and what he wasn't. I think it actually would be more of a credit to possibly David O. Selznick in the overall look, feel, and theatrical nature of this film than maybe Fleming directly. Maybe that's just my thought. Who had the uh, final cut? I think Selznick. Well, then maybe I should have went Selznick. Well, he almost self-financed it. He bought the original rights. He chose all the directors and the technical people to work on it. He did all of, or was at least involved and did the marketing production for the casting, particularly of Scarlett O'Hara when it eventually went to Vivian Lee because they did like a nationwide casting that helped increase the marketing for this film. So I, I think he has a bigger effect on the production value of this film but i think that for me the strongest performances out of all of these are from its cast i think those are the most memorable things that i think about when thinking of the movie and the number one character i consider i find him more likable than he was probably depicted in the book at least according to mom but i have rhett butler himself i have clark gable I think he's the strongest character by far. He's the only one that's able to walk away from a rather toxic situation by the end of the film. 
I would say, or at least see through some of the arrogance, the difficulties, the disadvantages, and work it to his own advantage. He was clever. He was dashing. He was, I don't know. I mean, there's uh, a lot of superlatives you could use to describe him in this movie, but I thought he was the strongest character and portrayed to me what was the most iconic figure in the movie. I also had Clark Gable playing Rhett Butler. I think he's somebody that you can love and that you can hate at the same time, <laughs> hate a little bit at the same time, because he he also was conniving, right? He went into business during the time of the war where he ever he could make money, he always said he wasn't on any one side. It was whoever was going to pay him. And he played that suave character that could just walk into a room and command a presence. And even though he played both sides and everybody knew it, everybody loved him. But they also despised him at the same time. And he could go into a house of ill repute and no one blamed him for it or said anything about it or the fact that he was friends with her or... He was a gun runner. Right. They had blockades in the ports and that's how he made his money. He was going to England, buying ammunition, foodstuffs, etc., and then running the blockades. And so he commanded high prices. So he made a ton of money. I just think he's the full operator on display during the course of the film. And to me, he's the more likable of the two central figures. I think that's why we end up siding with him in the end. We understand his desire to get away from the situation from something that's so incredibly broken that by the end of it, it's somewhat of a relief. And yet I think for my best secondary character, it was somebody that going into this watch, I think there's been a lot made of the subsequent opinions or depictions of Scarlett O'Hara after the fact. For example, the Carol Burnett show presenting her as a much different figure than I think is actually on screen in the film. She's a very layered character. She's a very difficult to understand character. When she's pushed back up against a wall, she's very resilient in the face of a lot of adversity. She crawls herself out of poverty, not necessarily through the best of means, but at least in a way that I think most Americans would see as somewhat valiant. But then she's also got this completely delusional side that even up until the last moments, she still thinks that there's some life, some future, some dream of hers that can still be realized despite all of the bridges she's burned. And so I have Vivian Lee as my secondary character because of the complexity of that character. To be able to accurately play someone who, in some ways during the film, is, for lack of a better term, bipolar, and Lee was, I think, undiagnosed bipolar herself in real life, mm -hmm. in a, such a light that didn't feel forced or inauthentic, even though I think that the notion publicly after the fact is, is that she grossly overacted the part. I guess I just didn't quite get that on this version of, of the watch that I got. I think she did overact it. I think it was a little bit cheesy in places. 
I don't think people really talked like that. <laughs> and this I, is also from the person who is, uh, let's say, uh, tries to act like Minnesota nice in Fargo is inaccurate. And for those at home, she just stuck her tongue out at me, uh, not knowing that I have to describe that on a podcast. You didn't have to describe anything. You could have just left it out. Sign language doesn't work for an audio medium, Mom. But I think that her character was somewhat fake. And I, and I don't think that she portrayed it with the, the way that maybe it was intended. But then again, that's maybe because I come at it from a different angle, like you said, having read the book first. So my best secondary performance was Hattie McDaniels' Manny. I loved how she got away with things. I love how she put herself out there. I think she was natural in her portrayal of the housekeeper, the the keeper of the, the home, they kept everything together and her care and concern uh, would have been normal about the family. And I just think it's so sad that she had to be separated from everybody instead of taking her rightful place among the stars of that day and, and getting her awarded. It's such a, such a shame, but likewise, she did a phenomenal job in this film, despite all of those problems. So far, I've heard both of you discuss the character and the acting performance and interchanging them. Okay, I don't, it's not the character that we're assessing. It's the performance. You know, the fact that Rhett Butler is a strong character is irrelevant. It's how well Clark Gable performed him. Or in this case, it's not how the portrayal or what the character of uh, Scarlett is, but how well uh, she was performed by Vivian Lee. I thought there was a ton of overacting. I thought Vivian Lee overacted a lot. And I think it's coming out of, if you ever watched any of those mid to late thirties films, overacting was common. And I think actually this is toned down from some of the overacting that was done in some of the films. What was the one with um, James Stewart and um, uh, Lionel Barrymore where you can't take it with you? That's overacted. And that was what, a year or two years before this film? One year. It was the previous year's Best Picture winner. Yeah. Okay. And so it was common. So I, I can understand to some extent how they overacted. But at times it was almost like watching uh, like an Asian or or uh, <laughs> uh, so South popular. American or Central American <laughs> melodrama because they, you know, just kind of overdid it. Now, my best secondary performance was Olivia de Havilland and even she overacted, but I thought she overacted less than everybody else seemed to. Um, at least her character, her performance, I thought was believable as the kind of the conscience, the the good person in the group, the soul of everybody around them, that uh, everybody kind of relied on her for being good and loving, caring, and kind. So I went with her as my best secondary. So I'm going to push back a little bit. Yes, there is some associated overacting with the period of the time, especially because they're only 
about 10 years removed from the grossly overacted because of necessity silent film era. If, if you want a, a, a classic example of the need or the movement from one to the other, I'll direct you to a film we've previously discussed, but 1952 Singing in the Rain and the notion of overacting all of a sudden needing to be toned back significantly. I do think that they were still in somewhat of an adjustment period. However, any good actor will tell you, I don't need to do as much acting if the character is written well. A lot of the acting is done for me in just how the lines have to be said. And I do think that trying to separate out the two, whether a character is written well and whether there's a good performance, is like trying to separate the cheese from a burger. I mean, it's stuck to the bun. <laughs> They're somewhat... They go together. They can be separated at one point in time, but at a certain point, they fuse together and they become one thing. And okay. so I did say that I thought Vivian Lee did a fairly good performance because it is a layered and complicated character. I think that in a modern setting, somebody probably could do a little bit more crafted job, but we're working within the bounds of what was acceptable at the time. And... By far, most people at the time thought she was the outstanding performance. I, on 85 years worth of looking back, think it's Clark Gable, but I can also understand why people thought that she was a good performance in this. That being said, I agree with your position, and I will give a really terrible hot take that I don't want to do, but I will say it because it's actually what I think. I think Olivia de Havilland should have won Best Supporting Actress. I think she's the more important character. I don't want to dismiss the cultural moment that is Hetty McDaniel winning her Oscar or her great acceptance speech or any of the other things that happen. I don't want to take that away in the slightest. But I think the more significant character, the better acted character, the less caricatured character in the film is Olivia de Havilland. And the reason it has to be in the movie is because it's the antithesis of what Scarlet is. You have to present a light and dark, somebody who loves beyond a fault versus somebody who is incredibly transactional. And so that it gives you the notion of this tug and pull that by the time that she passes on screen, you feel for that character, but you also understand that Scarlet is now having to make up for the fact that she can't be purely unemotional, detached, reprehensible in some ways. That she also now has to balance that out herself because the presence, the life force that would balance her out sometimes will no longer be there. And so I found de Havilland's character easily the most charismatic in this film. Well, I said that Clark Gable was the most charismatic. I mean, for the time, he was Mr. Dreamy, right? So he he looked the part, he played the part, he was the proverbial hero of the film, and just he just exudes charm. So, you know, he walked into the room and he just assessed the whole room and then he just told it like it was. I mean, he could read everybody. And that just takes, that just takes charm. 
And like I said, people liked him and hated him at the same time. And he did such a good job of pulling that all together. I think people would have been a little less attracted to him if they knew he had fake teeth, but that's just me. (laughs) And bad breath. (laughs) Ah, the magic of cinema. Yes, I guess. That's until we get 4D. Or smell-o-vision. Yeah, that's what 4D is. Oh, Texture and smell. Yeah, I can only think of what they could do with that. I I think the adult film industry would be... uh, in a new era. I think we're going a different direction than this intended. I don't this know. There's, this movie's got a lot of sex in it. Yeah. What? <laughs> Hardly. Okay. <laughs> what? What movie were you watching? <laughs> I, I'm not like sure. This, this movie's fashioned after one of Grandma's smut books. <laughs> All you had to do was swap out... Mitchell for Danielle Steele and it would have still worked. (laughs) Vivian Lee is my uh, vote for most charismatic. Really? Yes, because I don't know. She was beautiful. They picked her to fit that part and her looks reflected her horrible behavior and she fit the part so well because of it. Anybody who looked, who did not have that level of of beauty would never have pulled off the part best scene. I know that it's a three and a half hour film plus, but I tried to limit the amount of nominees I had. So you may have ones to add in. I have 12 Oaks. So the original party that they give at the beginning of the movie, then I skip over a lot of scenes in order to get to Melanie gives birth. I have returning to Tara when she finds her parents again. I have Rhett leaving Scarlet at least the first time uh, when he goes off to London. I have Melanie's deathbed, and then I have the final climactic sequence with Tomorrow is Another Day. So what did I miss that you felt was worthy of inclusion? I think you missed the big scene where Bonnie dies. I think that was really important to the story. And I think that the scene where Melanie goes to talk to Rhett about the funeral after Bonnie dies is also really important. I don't have anything to add. I mean, I know I skip a lot of the war sequences and the burning of Atlanta and several parts of that, but I'm trying to condense this down into the most important pieces. Well, I also think that the the scene where they're trying to escape and Melanie is in the carriage with the baby and, you know, they're trying to get through the, through the town. I think that's an, also an important scene. There's some symbolism in there, but. I think that is part of Melanie gives birth. No, I would separate no, those after. Oh, well, I, I had considered when you put it down as being the entire thing, but okay. No, because I think there's a, a different sequence where she sent or she runs off to the hospital to try and find the doctor and then she returns and then they figure out that they have to do it themselves. Then there's the confrontation with, I don't even remember the character's name, which is sad. Prissy. Dr. Mead. Yeah. Prissy. Oh yeah. That uh, leads to the violent outburst. And you know, so there's, there's a few things in that sequence where I don't necessarily see it as them escaping Atlanta, but I understand from the production value and 
its significance within the story that that could take on a, a superior meaning. I chose to limit this though as as much as I could and give you guys some opportunities to maybe point me in in stuff you felt was still important. To me though, the linchpin scene in the movie is still Melanie's deathbed because I feel that's the emotional climax. I know everybody will point to the final scene where Rhett leaves, but I don't think Rhett makes the decision until he sees what's going on in that moment. And you have the resolution between multiple characters within that sequence. You have the resolution between Melanie and Scarlett. You have the resolution between Scarlett and Ashley, the resolution between Rhett and Scarlett and Rhett and Ashley to a degree. So I think that is kind of the Rosetta Stone for understanding the resolution of this film is every character has their moment to kind of figure out what their final actions will be. And yes, it's maybe a little bit more emotionally punch heavy or you feel more of an emotional punch by the end when they do take those actions. But you know that the decisions are being made in those moments. Best scene, I think, is when Melanie goes to talk to Rhett about the funeral and how you can already tell at that point she's not feeling well. And there's just something soft and warm and loving in how she walks so slowly up the stairs and she knows what she has to do. And she comes back out and says, you know, the funeral will be tomorrow morning. And it just portrays her character as a woman and the just total difference that, you know, Scarlett couldn't go in there and talk to him and talk some sense into him. And the differences in how they interact with him and what works and what doesn't and why he's such a nemesis for Scarlett. They just, it's kind of like oil and water. And I just love her. It's like the final good thing she does. Okay, for me, the best scene, and I had considered them all as partly one because it all involves or is is surrounded by the burning of Atlanta and the arriving of Sherman and the march to the sea, which is Melanie gives birth and then they have to flee. And what that scene is pivotal is it's at that point that the entire film turns because up until then, they're still living in the idyllic world of the South. And as a result of, of Sherman's burning or march uh, in the, the seizure of Atlanta, they're all now charred. They have been burned. There are marks of pain, turmoil, degradation upon them. And the rest of the film is them now trying to overcome the loss that they had to suffer from their old life. And so to me, that's the best scene because... I think it tears them down to the very root of substance. I mean, there was nothing left. They had nothing. They were running for their lives and just getting away. From there, they had to completely come back from that point on. And so that's why I think that scene really does more to divide the film into two parts and show you exactly how they ultimately got to where they ended. As far as favorite scene, I like a well-crafted opening that introduces you to most of the primary characters that lets you kind of weave your way into the movie, but isn't necessarily exposition heavy while still letting you know exactly who all of these characters are. 
And so from a screenwriting aspect, as well as how each of these characters is given their own room to breathe and make their mark within the opening structure of the film, I'm going to go with 12 Oaks as my favorite scene. My favorite scene is Melanie's deathbed, because I think it's at that point in time that everything comes clear as to what the feelings really are. And it opens up everybody from that point forward uh, as to what their motives are, what their uh, reality is, and what it clears away all the chattel that has been built up around the characters up until that point in time. Most indelible moment, it's the final scene. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I'll do it tomorrow. After all, tomorrow is another day. It's the one thing that transcended multiple decades as to knowing how that film ends. That was so translatable. It was the thing that you felt walking out of the theater and it has been continuing to stick with audiences ever since. I agree. I don't have much more to say about that. I think the most indelible moment is definitely the end and how they part and how she begs and pleads. And he's, he's just done with her. I will make it a social and say uh, that I agree. And so with that, we will take our second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 185 movies we've graded so far, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Hinton Battle, 67, American actor, was in The Wiz, Dreamgirls, Miss Saigon, was also a dancer, was a three-time Tony winner in 1981, 84, and 1991. Just for a point of clarification, all three of those that he was in were the Broadway productions of those shows. Don Murray, 94, American actor, was in Bus Stop, A Hat Full of Rain, and The Plainsman. Mark Gustafson, 64, American animator. The PJs, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and the film director for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Oscar winner in 2022. For that film, in fact. Aston, Family Man Barrett, 77, Jamaican musician, was with Bob Marley and the Whalers. His bass work was a key feature of many uh, Whalers hits, including I Shot the Sheriff, Get Up, Stand Up, Stir It Up, Jamming, No Woman, No Cry, and Could You Be Love. William O'Connell, 94, American actor, Star Trek, Highway Patrol, Peter Gunn, and The Twilight Zone. Friend in real life, but often a Clint Eastwood movie foe in Paint Your Wagon, High Plains Drifter, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Every Which Way But Loose, and its sequel, Any Which Way You Can. And a shout out to our number one Clint Eastwood fan, our recurring guest and celebrity guest scorer, Kieran, who I'm sure this is a uh, personal loss for him. And Carl Weathers, 76, 
American actor, Rocky, Predator, The Mandalorian, Happy Gilmore. He was a football player with the Oakland Raiders and the uh, British Columbia Lions. This one hit hard for me this week. I'll just say as a professed fan of the Rocky film franchise, I love Rocky three because of the relationship that they develop with Apollo. I think that he's great in the first two movies, but he really takes it to a different level in three. And I hate Rocky four. Yes. Hate Rocky four because Apollo dies. And I think that the Rocky franchise particularly the last two movies before they had that hiatus of four and five suffer from a lack of Apollo Creed. That being said, Carl Weathers was good in a lot of things. I know dad, you're particularly fond of his memorable (laughs) character work in arrested development where he tried to make everything into a stew. And that was the most important key to acting. I loved seeing those clips again, all over social media the last few days, but he was a special actor who, had an ability to play much beyond his initial roles that he was available for, which was the athlete, the angry black man. He was able to eventually transcend those and become a fairly good character actor, whether it was in Happy Gilmore playing the golf coach with the missing hand or the Mandalorian, where he was eventually the rogue scallion that would assign all of the missions to then the governor of a entire planet. It uh, is a sad loss, at least for me, and um, I'm, I'm going to miss being able to see him in, in stuff going forward. And so with that, we will recognize these here for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. And thank you, Mom, for that touching tribute of Carl Weathers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Best funniest lines. First one I have down. Red, 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 if you go, where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Scarlet, as God is my witness, as God is my witness, they're not going to lick me. I'm going to live through this. And when it's over, I'll never be hungry again. Nor will any of my folk If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. You still think you're the cutest trick in shoe leather. Rhett, you're like the thief who isn't the least bit sorry he stole, but is terribly, terribly sorry he's going to jail. Rhett, no, I don't think I will kiss you, although you need kissing badly. That's what's wrong with you. You should be kissed, and often, and by someone who knows how. Scarlet, but you are a blockade runner, Rhett, for profit and profit only. Are you trying to tell me you don't believe in the cause? Rhett, I believe in Rhett Butler. He's the only cause I know. Rhett, I can't go all my life waiting to catch you between husbands. Rhett, did you ever think of marrying just for fun? Scarlet, marriage? Fun? Fiddle-dee-dee. Fun for men, you mean. Got any more, Dad? I'm out. Scarlet. Tara, home. I'll go home. And I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, uh, tomorrow is another day. I think that ship done sail. Rhett, with enough courage, you can do without a reputation. Rhett, take a good look, my dear. It's a historic moment you can tell your grandchildren about. How you watched the Old South fall one night. 
Gerald O'Hara, do you mean to tell me, Katie Scarlett O'Hara, that Tara, that land doesn't mean anything to you? Why, land is the only thing in the world worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. Kind of got into a slight Irish accent there, Ma. <laughs> Just a hint of one. Mm. You were you were feeling it, weren't you? The written page was calling to you. Yeah. My last one, Charles Hamilton. Are you hinting, Mr. Butler, that the Yankees can lick us? No, I'm not hinting. I'm saying very plainly that the Yankees are better equipped than we. They've got factories, shipyards, coal mines, and a fleet to bottle up our harbors and starve us to death. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. That's treacherous. I refuse to listen to any renegade talk. Well, I'm sorry if the truth offends you. Scarlet, sir, you are no gentleman. Rhett and you, miss, are no lady. You got any left? No. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first, Dad. What do you have down? Well, for the industry, it's a five. There's no question about that. I mean, it's considered great, everything about it. It, you know, the only thing I would do is, is I can't go a full five for the public because I think you know, uh, it's kind of lost luster over the last generation or two. I don't think that there are a lot of kids who are familiar with it or who've seen it. We did our little straw poll of our staff and uh, uh, it was you know, those under 30 um, were barely aware of it and knew nothing about it and had never seen it. So I'm going to go with a 4.5 for the public because I think the mass still is well aware of it, but I have to give it a little bit down for that. I gave it an eight because everybody knows this film. They know that it exists. They know that it's out there. They know Scarlet and they know Rhett, even if they've never seen the movie, because it's so popular and so out there and people quote the lines from it and people know what the lines are from. So I gave it an eight. So I had a 9.5 for mine. So I went a little bit below you, dad. I think it's a clear five on the industry. I really don't think there's much to discuss there where I have gradations of how much it's lived in the audience. I will agree with you, but I agree to an extent that goes even further down than your score. I think that it's name recognition is very high, but knowing the story, knowing the characters, knowing much beyond the very surface level stuff that you've seen translatable into pop culture is not as, as apparent. And I don't think that for as many people who know of the movie, there are not many who could tell you what it's about or have seen it. So I ended up at a 3.5 for an 8.5 overall. So that's an 8.67 average between the three of us. Now, impact and significance, I really don't think it's much debatable. This is a full 10 for me. I agree. I mean, there's not much to argue about. The no. box office, the impact it had on culture and society and the buzz surrounding it. No, there's no way you can do anything but 10. It made instant stars of everybody that was involved. It had a number of awards. It was by far the biggest film of the era. There's really no way about it. It, it was the Star Wars or the Jaws or the Godfather of its era. 
So that's a 10 average between the three of us. I, I really didn't want to take a ton of time on that one. Now, novelty is where I think this is going to be where we start to really dive into where this film is going to be dissected. It's a romantic tragedy set in the antebellum and reconstruction eras based on a fictional book that was very popular. The novelty of the story just simply isn't very novel. I don't think it's necessarily like directly taking off of something that we've discussed on other things. Just because it's adapted doesn't mean it can't be novel in its own right. And to adapt something that dense with that much subject material was incredibly difficult, which is why I do give them some credit for taking out the parts that they did and making a creative and engaging narrative nonetheless. But where I think this movie has to get points up is for its technical achievements of the time. It's to me not lost that the fact that the two most well-recognized, well-thought-of movies from 1939 that have name recognition and have probably been seen by more people than any other in this year are the two that were in color, particularly this and The Wizard of Oz. It also doesn't shock me that they were constantly re-churned and reintroduced to new generations and new audiences for decades and generations, one being primarily through TV, The Wizard of Oz, and the other being through re-releases in the theatrical run. Now, that's partially based on just the color aspect itself, but also because this movie, as The Wizard of Oz does as well, looks like it's 20 years ahead of its time from a cinematography standpoint to a costuming to a set design and the use of color all enhance the structure and the storytelling of this epic and made it feel different and special comparative to anything else of its era. It's hard to deny that this was groundbreaking in its moment, and so if I were to give this a full five on the execution side, for me, it feels warranted to go to a 7.5 overall for novelty. I don't believe there were any other films that were really about the Civil War or about the time period. So I think in that regard, it's novel. I also think the cinematography with the silhouetted scenes and the was was novel. People hadn't been out there doing that. It lent to the beauty of what was happening. And, you know, even in some of the scenes with the carriage ride, with the big fire, and I think that they they had to stretch some from what they were used to, to get those scenes put in and make them anything realistic. And so I think that there was a lot of novelty with this movie. And I think that I, I gave it a nine. Okay. For me, this really was the first sweeping epic. I mean, I don't remember anything that was more, you know, that was kind of the, the, the type of epic film before this, where it's a, a broad story and such. Now, love triangle is kind of can worn I, out can I a bit. Give you, can I give you a couple of examples to possibly draw on just from okay, my very ahead. basic knowledge of, of the era? I do think there were attempts at it. None of them are done to this level. Clark Gable was in Mutiny on the Bounty, which had won Best Picture for the year of 1935. You have Cavalcade, which is adapted based on a play, but is somewhat of a, an attempt at some version of an epic. I think All Quiet on the Western Front, the original version, is somewhat of a war epic, but they weren't done this well. I mean, even the first Oscar winner, Wings, has a high production value 
similar to this, but this feels different because it feels so far ahead of its time. Like I, I mentioned the way it looks makes it feel like it was a film made in the fifties as opposed to 1939. So again, I go back to what I originally said, which is this is the first of what became the classic true epic that has existed basically since this time frame. It repositioned, it redefined it, and I think all of the epics that have happened have more to do with Gone with the Wind than any other film. But it is a love story, a love triangle, and so I can't give it that kind of big marks up. So I gave it some points down for that. So I went with an 8.5 overall for novelty. I'm actually quite shocked that I'm the low man on this, but well, we're going to get into the difficult ones next or the difficult one next. I know. I I don't think that the rewatchability score is necessarily going to be high, but I'm trying to think of how I want to do this. Your, your point on it being the first of the great epics. Yeah. I'll buy into that. So I'll I'll match your 8.5. So we again have an 8.67 between the three of us. All right, I'll clear out some space for you, Dad. It's time for you to run some ISO ball on classicness. Okay, the normal point we start with is a 7. And so what I started to think about is, because we have this debate as to whether, you know, is the film a prisoner of its time or is it beyond that? And I guess... That's the question that you have to say is, is this film a reflection of the times or is it something that exceeds the movie itself, that it ended up becoming more of an impact overall than, than the time than it was as far as reflective of the time. And so I give it three points off if it uh, exceeds what the time frame was. And I think, that overall this has had a longer impact on romanticizing uh, that time frame than it should have. So that brings me down to a four right point, right at that point. Now you add in there that this, and I'll, and I'll put in here such things as, for example, the, uh, <laughs> the entire scene where Ashley is shot and they're talking about going to the, to uh, the house of ill repute and it's, but they're all at a political rally. It wasn't a political rally. It was a clan rally. The movie took it out. The book described it as being a clan rally because I looked it up. This is the kind of thing where I'm talking about, which is again, scrubbing it. So that's why I went down from the three. Now, as far as uh, that goes, we have strong females in an era where strong female leads were not necessarily that uh, poignant. We have actually two of them that are pretty strong. We have the first African-American, although the, there was some criticism of the performance, but the first African-American woman to win an Oscar. So I have to give it a couple or some points up on that. And to even be nominated, I should mention. Yeah. So, I'm going down three on that to begin with. I'm going to give it down another for the whole uh, scrubbing of some of the more controversial things that were supposedly in the film and what were going on, the portrayal of slavery itself and of how uh, slaves were treated. Uh, I give that another point down. So that gives me a three, but I'm going to give it two points up for 
the uh, performances or the uh, reliance upon strong women and uh, Hattie uh, and her uh, Oscar. So I'm going to go with a six, which is probably higher than you thought I would. It's much higher than I thought you would because we've joked for a while that this was going to be near the bottom of the classicness score. Well, I tried to be more realistic and take into account that this is a piece of art and it, while it has some, ref, or I took out for the reflectiveness of what it impacted beyond the film, and I tried to leave in what really was the nature of the film, if that makes any sense. I tried to be as nuanced as I could and be realistic and not just slam it for my own political reasons. Go ahead, Ma. Well, I think he gave a huge description of a lot of different things, and while I don't agree with everything. I would agree with most everything that he said. This is a classic in the fact that Snow White is a classic and uh, Beauty and the Beast is a classic. Little girls love princess stories. In this story, Scarlet is a princess. So it brings about that emotion, that dream quality that you were talking about that doesn't seem realistic, that romanticism. And among women, let me just say, I think this is going to show a higher level of classicness than it is with men, simply because we love the dream. We love the princess. And since we're little girls on, we want that that life. So I went with the seven just because I think that women overall appreciate this movie from that perspective, however wrong it might be. Yeah, because I don't think Scarlett is much of a princess at all in this film, given how dirty she has to make her life in order to reassert or reestablish her reputation, her prowess within society, that she has to forego a lot of the niceties, the privilege, etc., and get her hands in the muck and do the work in order to make her realistic dreams come true. And by the end of it, she doesn't even get the guy, either of them. (laughs) I know that you're accurate in that there is some level of romanticism that appeals to women in this movie. I'm just not sure what it's based on, but part of it may be the strong characters and the fact that she got what she wanted. And that's possible. But then I I don't associate that with romanticism so much as maybe an identification of what you wish you could do yourself. Maybe. Maybe an inner strength that uh, you don't necessarily find. Or at least that we haven't trained a lot of our young girls to be able to find in themselves. I could see that a little bit more, at least based on what the character is and how the movie is laid out than the the vision, the fantasy of ending up with Rhett Butler. Because even she doesn't end up with Rhett Butler. <laughs> right. Not everybody has a happy ending. So with classicness, I often find myself creating a pros and cons list. And knowing that this was going to be one of the more difficult challenges we've ever had in this category for this movie. I created a fairly significant pros and cons list, negative and positive, back and forth for points on or off. And starting at the point of the seven, where we usually say is our barometer, really the only way to get up points is 
or beyond the seven is to be ahead of your time. To me, there's nothing in this because it's so backward looking that is really ahead of its time, save for maybe the existence of a self-made woman who is able to operate and manipulate men in between the lines and take advantage of circumstances to pull herself out of her poverty. But at the same point, I wouldn't even say that's necessarily ahead of its time because we still have a difficult time with women making themselves into something as opposed to it being given to them, especially in America. I think there's still a fairly significant misogynistic tilt to how women assume power or get top positions or any of the other monikers that you'd like to stick with it. I think there is a level to which the audience is rewarded for not liking Scarlett's behavior, even though we would revere that in a man for doing what he had to do be to become rich again. We don't necessarily see that the same in Scarlett. And so when she becomes delusional, when she loses everything again, save for the money, we're seeing it as us being rewarded for what's justice in the movie, even though I don't know if that's necessarily justice overall. So the negatives. The movie is melodramatic. There's no two ways about it. I do think the public sentiment is that it's overacted, but as I mentioned before, I would say that's more of a stereotype of pop culture reflections after the fact as opposed to what I think is necessarily an accurate depiction of acting at the time. Its characters are often naive and delusional, particularly Scarlet, which doesn't necessarily make sense to me, which is why I have a hard time with her character, not necessarily in the way that she was played or acted, because I think Vivian Lee did a good job in conveying that. It's just that the way it's written, to me, is a bit confusing. Some of the visual effects have aged out significantly, particularly the backdrop screens where you can tell that there's people in the foreground that are uh, on a stage, and then the background or the backdrop is on a recorded screen. Some of that doesn't necessarily age well for me. Its depictions of black people are rather thinly drawn, and always from a perspective of obedience while lacking any personal agency. It promotes several popular myths, and it gives a rosy interpretation of something that neither of you have mentioned, but marital rape and domestic violence, which are quite noticeable within the movie. But, to give it its at least fair due, the positives. Multiple strong, independent female characters with high degrees of agency who bend men around them instead of the inverse, which was not something that happened in movies, in stories, in popular culture for ever. It was not something that just because of this movie that created a sea change where we had women superheroes. For a while, I think it could be said that Scarlett O'Hara was somewhat of a heroic character despite all of her unangelic behaviors. <laughs> the movie does look like a movie produced in the 50s instead of the 30s, as we kind of already mentioned. Its main story doesn't revolve around many of the criticisms in the film, and I do think you can separate out and enjoy the main story without necessarily all of the background noise that could be associated with the film, although I don't think you can dismiss it entirely either. There's a notion that this could be considered timeless, but I also wonder, in a way, 
that we forget certain movies of the past after they've gone past the point of their notoriety or being passed on from one generation to the next, or if they're special, if it loses some of that sheen of timelessness. I think Casablanca is still held in somewhat of a timeless fashion. I think The Wizard of Oz is held in some regard in that fashion. I think It's a Wonderful Life has found a place and a transcendence as a movie from the past that still moves forward and gives great meaning to people. I just don't know if this has the same feel, the same pull that it did 20, 30 years ago. And so while I would normally give, especially for a movie this old, probably like an additional three points on that regard, I think I'm going to take an extra point off of the timelessness aspect of it, give it only about a two, added all the negative and positive things together and kind of figured out where my math sat. I'm at a 4.5. And honestly, I didn't think I would be the low man on this. Okay. So that's a 5.83 average between the three of us. Rewatchability, I'll make this short and sweet. Unless I need to ever watch it again for my own purposes or for whatever reason we've decided to revisit it, I just really don't feel like I ever need to put this movie on again. I like the movie fine enough, but it's not something that I I get a lot of enjoyment out of to go out of my way. So I have a one on that side of it. If I'm going to have it on, the likelihood is, is that I would watch it for a particular reason. I'm discussing the movie for some reason whatsoever. And therefore the likelihood of that means that I have a higher degree that I might finish it. I have a 1.5. I have a 2.5 on the rewatchability here. My original opinion of the movie was not great. Um, I did enjoy it more this last time that I watched it than I had the two times prior. I have a three. If it's on, I may watch it, but I'm not going to go back out of my way to to find it if if I don't need to. For me, I'm not going to put it on. I don't care if I ever rewatch it again. If I do run across it, I may watch it for a few minutes here and there. So I went with a, actually, I went with a three also. So that's a 2.83 for rewatchability. So to recap the categories, we had a 8.67 for legacy, a 10 for impact and significance, an 8.67 for novelty, a 5.83 for classicness, a 2.83 for rewatchability. For audience score, we had an 84% for Google users and a 92% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.8 overall. So that makes our final score a 44.8. And currently placing it on our list, just ahead of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and just below Misery and Glory. Okay. As always, if you think that our scores were wrong in any way, you can certainly write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or at any of our social handles at Podcast on YouTube, Letterboxd, Instagram, TikTok, and X, formerly known as Twitter. All right. Remaining questions. I really only have the one, which I think has been the one that everybody's asked for years and years and years. And even though there have been sequels in the works, there's been books published, I don't think that they necessarily hold the authority. Miss Mitchell never decided to write another book, even though she had many, many offers. But does Scarlet ever get Rhett back? 
No. I, no, I would say I, categorically no. When you lose a child like that, and we've known couples, it's going to be incredibly difficult given the amount of pain and other things that you'd have associated with that person to ever recapture a, a romantic feeling. And not to mention all the other toxic things that they did to each other, I just would have a hard time seeing them ever repair anything. Even if he got into a place where he might have some affinity towards her, which I don't think will be possible, but let's just say it might. She is such a toxic personality that I don't even know if she could accept that he would actually come back. Well, and I read in one of the articles preparing for the show tonight that they did ask Margaret Mitchell if he ever came back, if in her dream, and she said absolutely not. So she already said he would not come back. The only man she ever loved is the man that she couldn't have. She loved the idea of him more than the person. And so she was in love with Ashley because she couldn't have him. Now she's in love with Red again because she can't have him. And he's wise enough or would have been from the character to realize that there's no way she had any capacity to love him. Why would you want to be in a relationship like that? No, he would never come back. Any remaining questions for either of you? None. No, I don't have any. Well, it's been a awfully robust discussion. I hope that we did this movie justice. I know that we've been teasing it for several months now on various different episodes. So I, I hope that we have served the audience well. I appreciate everyone bearing with us for 200 plus episodes. I know that even though this is the 200th official episode on a particular movie, we've had a lot of other various things, including our Marvel Cinematic Universe feed that I do every month with our friend Adam Hitchcock from the streaming circuit. But we've made a lot of good friends along the way. We've developed a pretty good community of recurring guests, as well as just people that are within our orbit of movie discussions. And I'm appreciative of all of you. I'm appreciative of all of our various guests that have been able to be on the show particularly those that have been on multiple times and our five timers club. All of them have done some truly great work for us. And we very much appreciate you not just because, you know, you got a hat, but also the various amount of work. We know how much time and effort it takes to prepare for any one of these episodes. And so we want to thank you. And lastly, I will thank my co-host who on a whim decided that, Blending a sports discussion of the greatest of anything could work for a movie podcast. And so taking two of the things that we love the most, combining them and creating something that is uh, this long, this much of a project, but clearly has meant something to both of us. I thank you, Dad. Well, I thank you, too, because you're really the legs and uh, heart of this show. Um, you do the most heavy lifting, and I a lot of times feel like I'm along for the ride, but uh, I acknowledge that. Well, the rest of the family is proud of you guys, so congratulations on your 200 episodes. Well, as Woody Allen said, or was it Woody Allen? Half of life uh, is just showing whoa, up. Whoa, 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 whoa. We just got done with Gone with the Wind, and you want to bring up Woody Allen? What, That's what, true. Is that going to be episode 300? No, let's not. <laughs> Half of uh, life is like, just showing up. Uh, uh, Dad, I mean, why don't we just bring up Harvey Weinstein and get it over with? <laughs> okay. Uh, Never mind. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so that's a good place to stop it for this week. Thank you for listening. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. So if you could be here around 9, that would be great. Okay. Oh, oh, and I uh, almost forgot. Uh, I'm also going to need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday too, okay? We uh, lost some people this week, and uh, we sort of need to play some catch-up. Next week for our 201st episode, we discuss the irreverent cult comedy Office Space from 1999, celebrating its 25th anniversary. Written and directed by Mike Judge, Music by John Frizzle, starring Ron Livingston, Jennifer Aniston, Stephen Root, and Gary Cole. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in and are fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on YouTube, X, Instagram, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>